everybody, Mike here. Welcome to the Vox Podcast. So glad that you are tuning in and so grateful to be a small part of your life. Uh, this may be the last full podcast of 2018, and what a way to go out then with my friend, Rick McKinley. Rick McKinley, a pastor in Portland. Say hello. Hey. He's a pastor, but so much more. He pastors a church called Amago Day, or I, like, like I like to call it Amago D. Nothing. Was no. that like a Beastie Boys? No, that was just that was no. an attempt to be funny. Um, and uh, one of the creators of something called Advent Conspiracy, which is uh, appropriate this time of year. And and dude, when I was at uh, a church called Rock Harbor, and that thing came out. I mean that that was that was some really powerful stuff because that was all new. Like instead of the traditional Advent, it was way more. Um, subversive. And so anyway, great, 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 great. And, uh, and he's just written a book and how many, what number of books is this? Um, five by myself. And then we did the advent conspiracy one. So yeah. there were three authors on that. So nice. Yeah. All right. So we'll call it five and a half. Five, yeah. Five and the one third. Uh, Rick is in Portland. One of, one of my favorite cities. He's one of my favorite people. And, um, and so I'm stoked to have him. We've been friends for a while now. Uh, we both have, uh, special needs kids. And so, and we're both very handsome, uh, mm-hmm. needless, needless to say, um, Rick w- describe right now where you, you are sitting, describe the, the, the digs oh, right now. I am sitting in my office, which was created by whoever built this church four square pasture so it's it's unbelievable there's sun outside in portland whoa and i'm sitting in a big chair in front of a laptop rick that was gripping thank you yeah very well much. I, know, <laughs> I have three plants and uh i'm excited about them <laughs> they're growing are they real plants? Yeah. They're real plants, um, and they're not marijuana. Just to clarify, no, no. In the we, yeah, we're. In, I don't know if we're allowed three or four of those, but I'm not growing them. Okay, excellent here, work here at least <laughs> <laughs> at the church at yeah. Imago D. Um, yeah. uh, so the the name of the book is Faith for the Present Moment. This moment. Yep, that's what I said. Present's fine. Yeah. Well, faith it's, for this it's, moment. It's not the best title. It's kind of a run-on sentence. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's accurate. Yeah. Um, so, man, as much as I just want to goof around with you for the next 45 minutes, um, I, I did I did really enjoy the book, and I love what it's about. And it, and it certainly is stuff that will resonate uh, with our community. Um, so when you when you you know, talk about faith for this present moment. (laughs) What's the real title? Faith for this moment, navigating a polarized world as the people of God. Holy The title I wanted was uh, Baptized in Broken Babylon, which I thought was amazing. Dude, that's that's some um, alliteration. Yeah. And and kind of like a word picture. Right, uh, right. Anyways, it got vetoed. Yeah, by the publisher. Well, you know, when you're a big deal, man, that's what you got to deal with. 
So <laughs> faith for this moment and then navigating something. Um, when, when, what? <laughs> Just ask me a real question. Okay. Please. Yes. Um, <laughs> in Portland, how big a deal is Coors Light? Would you say? Just as a, as a um, beverage. Just, and I want to lay my cards on the table here, Rick. I, I am a huge Coors Light fan and an advocate. Yes. All right. And um, so, you know, John Mark Comer, right? And you know what a big foodie uh, he yes. is. And so I used to take him to Quiznos <laughs> mm, in, the... in Portland. He loved it. He loved it. <laughs> Taking him to some chain crappy chain restaurant chain restaurant yep. and buy them a Coors Light yes that's what I'm I talking about I, I didn't know they sold those in Portland Coors Lights or Quiznos yeah. okay well <laughs> either okay that's hurtful what's your personal opinion of Coors Light um you know when I was 18 and at Chico <laughs> State in California it was probably I mean it was if I had extra money, we would totally go with Coors Light. I don't think I've had one since then. Um, I think you're missing out, my friend. I do. Well, I mean, if I, I, if I ever make it to Ohio, <laughs> did I say it right? Ohio. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. Faith yeah. in this present uh, moment in Ohio. Um. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, here's by, see, I could do this forever. Um, when, when you talk about this present moment, describe this present moment First for us. Of all, I don't <laughs> talk about this present moment. This is a, a phrase you have invented but while I think, we're here. I think the present moment is implied in this moment. <laughs> well, it does, but the present moment would be like this present moment. Which that we're awesome. experiencing okay. right now, as opposed to but when this they're moment. listening. But when they're listening to this, it won't be this present moment. It'll be that one. Oh, do you understand? Damn, I do. It's just it's a little multiverse action. <laughs> Which of the Infinity Stones is your favorite, my friend? <laughs> um, uh, all right. So, so what prompted what prompted the book, and what was striking to you about this moment that required? Uh, guidance and direction for for yeah. the people of God. Well, I think um, you know in Portland. Portland's ob- obviously a post Christian, post everything. Um, so we've been we've been in it maybe a little bit longer than other places in the country. But at the same time, the election uh, was sort of a stark moment. Twenty sixteen. Where. 2016, yeah, in case this present moment is 2040 or something. Um, Yes, the most recent election, uh, 2016 for the rerun. Um, But yeah, it was was one of those moments where there wasn't like this clear Christian candidate, sort of despite what, particularly I think for white evangelical churches. and the polarized, the polarization was very drastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in Portland, I mean, the city was kind of on fire for three months afterwards, mm-hmm. protests and and whatnot. And and what emerged was uh, was this split that 
that even within the church created a chasm where perhaps there wasn't necessarily seen eye to eye, but people could hang together Mm -hmm. uh, to where now there was a clear division over that. I think that along with, like I I remember I talked about in the book, listening to a a radio program Mm -hmm. the day of the Orlando shooting at the um, nightclub in Orlando. And up to that point, it was the worst mass shooting in American history. I think, sadly, we seem to break that record every 23 days or something. But Mm -hmm. um, so it's a gay nightclub and the lady from NPR's interviewing a pastor in Orlando. And she says, as churches, as, as evangelicals, particularly, you are pro gun and anti gay. So how in the world do you speak hope to this moment? Mm -hmm. And, um, wow. Yeah, it it was, it was kind of like he was, he was stuck. Not, not from the sense that I think he himself promoted that agenda, but, saw the discrepancy there. Right. Um, right. And you realize that what's been communicated to culture, whether uh, accurately or through stereotype, is just that, that this is no longer uh, a movement of people who follow Jesus. This is a, a political movement with agendas that keep certain people out and certain people in. Yeah. Um, and you just sort of recognize that was sort of a, a slice uh, into this very large pie of like, where, what does it mean to be the people of God now? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's, that's the, the key question. question. Yeah. Yeah. That's the question that keeps driving us. Um, so we're polarized internally um, around politics. We're politicized externally. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're seen as a political interest group or a special interest group, as opposed to this big umbrella, you know, um, proclaiming good news and, and the word, Ooh. oh my, was that a pager? Gosh. What was that? Do you have a pager? <laughs> I don't know what that was. <laughs> That's all. I am, uh. So hey, we're live. To, we're not editing we're, this yep, either. So, I know. So and what, so what was look. it? Well, I I don't know if you know this, but I am a doctor. I'm not a licensed physician, um, but wow. I, I do get a page now and again. <laughs> I've been doing minor cataract surgery on the side, so I probably need to go visit that lady after after this. Perfect. Uh, so, so you gotta have a side hustle. Well, right? everyone, yes, everyone has to have so a side hustle. That's mine. Yes, perfect. Um, <laughs> I'm actually a foot model, so um, <laughs> I've seen that foot. Oh, you actually you have. Um, so the the phrase or the the yeah, I guess it's a phrase. The phrase you use to describe where the church is in this moment is the the phrase in exile, mm-hmm. right? Which is this deep, rich sort of biblical phrase. Tell us, tell us a little a bit about what you mean by that. What is, what it is it, what does it mean to be in exile? That's yeah. So the definition of exile 
particularly as you look at the Old Testament, but most of the New Testament too, is a time where the promises of the past have to be reimagined as it relates to the future. That's good. Because those self-validating structures that once were there are no longer present. So like, and, uh, in a, in like take evangelicalism for a second. What were the self-validating structures? So, right. If you went back 50 years, you would look at maybe traditional marriage, Judeo-Christian ethics, uh, God country, yeah. um, the, the Republican Party for kind of the 90s moral majority. Um, those were were structures and systems within culture that I think validated what the church believed. And when those disappear, um, then you're having to reimagine, like, okay, what does faithfulness to Jesus look like now? So when Israel goes into exile, I mean, this is what I found hopeful in kind of studying this. When Israel goes into exile, they lose their land, they lose their king, they lose temple, um, priesthood, right? All the holy of holies, everything goes. And now they're in a place where it's a military power, it's uh, financially, you know, economically progressive, super pluralistic, doesn't, you know, don't speak Hebrew, we don't go by your calendar, they've lost everything. Yeah. And they should have been assimilated into that was the, the culture. Goal, right? That was, that the, was goal. the goal. Yep. And they should have disappeared, right? And yet they didn't. They found a way to like be faithful. This is when the synagogue emerges, the scribe kind of comes on the scene because people don't speak Hebrew anymore. Yeah. Um, Sabbath was actually obeyed in exile, even though they struggled with it prior. Mm. And and uh, so you have those people like Daniel and Jeremiah and prophets and those figures who who were navigating, you know, discerning what does it mean to be faithful to Yahweh when I'm going to spend my entire life uh, in Babylon, right? And and how do I? How, when do I resist? When do I stand up? When do I? You know. Right for them, it was for them it was historical reality. Mm-hmm. So when you get to us and you describe kind of the church in America as an exile, uh, translate that if you would. Yeah, and I, you know, when you get to the New Testament, it, um, it's seen metaphorically. Peter talks about it, which isn't. It's not that they're physically in exile, but that we are now a people in the world, not of the world. Um, we're citizens of, of America, but also heaven. Uh, and so for us, I think it means that when those, when the culture has shifted and when those things that used to validate your faith go away, the question becomes, how do you respond? And if we understand the exile motif of scripture that actually starts in the garden, you know, yeah. they're exiled from the garden. It goes all the way through scripture. Then you realize the people of God have always been in this place of exile. They've never fit perfectly. Yeah. And there is an opportunity to live distinctly 
where being a Christian doesn't mean that I vote a certain way. It doesn't mean that uh, I hold to certain agendas politically, but it means I what, you know, yep. what are those distinctives now? Yeah. And so Israel, and so, so Israel cool had time. lost, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Israel had lost, I'm trying to just use the language you use in the book. Israel had lost their identity, their place, the physical place they were in and the practices that made them distinct. So they, they had to evolve into new, right. uh, new identity, new place. And that's the good news of exile, right? Is that biblically, it's a place of bad news, of course. Um, it's usually, uh, at least in the Old Testament, the idea that that there's some sort of discipline or some sort of call or some sort of mm-hmm. something away from what's familiar. And in the New Testament, it's a picture of us not fitting in. So I love that. Um, so if if we can say the American church is in exile, we've kind of lost our identity, right? And we've lost our place. And by place, you mean center of culture, right? We used to be kind mm-hmm. of the center Right. We, we, I mean, it's obvious we're in a much more marginalized place. Yeah. And and I think as we look at this last uh, election, you had mentioned it, that Trump was going to sort of re- return um, mm-hmm. the, the country back to the believers. So we'll say Merry Christmas. We'll, yeah. um, I, you know, how, how far that goes, I don't know. But, but that is one illusion that I think the church is hanging on to is we will get back to the time of the good old days. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what was, what was fascinating, I'm sure that that same kind of rhetoric was happening for Mm -hmm. Israel. I'm sure there were prophets or people that were rising up saying, God's going to come and deliver back, you know, and Jeremiah writes a letter and basically says, hey, you should probably plant a garden and buy a house. You're not going home for a long time. But here's how to navigate your situation. Um, right. Pray for the city. Uh, if it prospers, you prosper. You know, um, basically seek, seek the prosperity and the flourishing of the place that you're in. And by the way... I know the plans I have for you, says yeah. the Lord. You know, yeah. the verse we give to every college kid as he goes off. It was actually <laughs> written to these people in exile. And and it's God's way of saying, don't freak out um, that there's a good end here, yeah. but don't listen to the people and their false agendas yeah. either. Yeah. You know? So we really have three options in exile, right? Three B's. Three B's. Three B's, like any good preacher, three B's. (laughs) Option one is? Uh, Baptize it. So basically, let's uh, just, I mean, you see see this in some uh, progressive Christian circles where we're just going to wholesale take the values and norms of Babylon and try to squeeze them into the biblical narrative and and make them fit and and sort of just create a situation where hey jesus loves everybody and everything's okay uh the issue with that is you will you will end up assimilated um i mean if there isn't 
an exclusive way to heaven to the Father through the Son, and there isn't a cross that actually need to be crucified upon. Um, you know, some people may go, "That's that's great. Everyone can come to church, and we'll get excited about recycling or the environment." But you could also stay in bed and not participate, and nothing's going to change. So there's no power uh, to the gospel. Uh, one of the interesting things that we encounter at Imago even is people who uh, who would come and say like I'm gay or I'm a you know lesbian, and they say we. We just want to know if we'll be accepted, but we don't want you to go affirming because every church that we've been to that's gone affirming has sort of quit preaching the gospel. That's not our language. That's theirs. Mm -hmm. But you, so you see this kind of, it's just evidence of kind of what we're talking about. When we baptize it, it's very difficult to be faithful and prophetic. And, and and I think the motivation isn't just to go, hey, we don't care about truth anymore. I think it really is to go, we want to be faithful to display a God that's gracious and loving and merciful. But the problem with that is if there isn't truth, right? If there isn't truth and grace, then there's no there's no resurrection. There's no redemption. It's just kind of a blanket acceptance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so baptizing so one. So baptizing something in culture is culture leads the conversation, and then we accept it, Christianize it, yeah. right, and that ultimately leads us to being assimilated into whatever cultural movements are going on around us. Yeah, exactly, and and that can happen on the guys, conservative side too, right? Absolutely. There's a a conservative version of it where we look at the systems of uh, power, right, Uh, in Babylon, so to speak, and say, hey, we're going to leverage politics or Mm -hmm. we're going to leverage economics or we're going to leverage, you know, whatever Babylon's goods are to get a Christian end. Mm -hmm. And that really isn't um, that really isn't Christianity. That's Christendom. Mm-hmm. It's saying we can kind of create this nation that accepts Christian morality or truths without really affecting the heart of the believer. So, mm-hmm. so yeah, assimilation goes both ways. It can go liberal and it can go conservative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the option one is is to baptize it. So we're in Babylon and just say, okay, well, since if you can't beat them, join them. Um, Mm -hmm. Option two, B number two. B number two is burn it down. That's Uh, Portland's favorite option. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you can burn it down again, liberal or conservative, Uh, a hostile takeover. uh, And burn it down really is an image of, of, of trying to replace or to go back to the good old days or to, if, if, if uh, the world's getting too out of control, we need to, we need a hostile takeover or something like you were saying. Yeah, that's, exactly. That's the burn it down option. It's kind of built, burn it down and rebuild Christendom or whatever other agenda is there. Got it. And, and it's a kind of a, I mean, we live at a trippy time 
of these identity politics. So, Mm -hmm. and what's interesting about this, not to get overly philosophical, but uh, it's allowed when Nietzsche talked about God being dead and we all kind of know that quote, but he didn't really see that as a positive thing. He said, what will happen is there'll be this massive moral vacuum uh, that we won't maintain the morality of religion while we let go of the idea of a God. And, and what he, he admitted like, but we don't have the true morality. So it will either become totalitarianism and, or nihilism. So anything goes, or the government has to enforce what's right. And what you see in America, particularly around identity politics, whether it's the NRA or the gender fluid movement or whatever, is it's nihilistic from the standpoint of whatever group decides a truth, whether it has any rational reasoning or not, um, but then they want the government to enforce that truth. Mm-hmm. So if it's a crazy truth, like I need to, um, we need to have, you know, f- 15 AR, whatever assault rifles in our living room, uh, the government needs to always enforce and recognize that. Or if it's a gender fluid movement that says I need to be called we or something like that, the government needs to enforce that. And pretty soon you have all these little identity groups and i think christians are going okay which one of these does do i align with Mm -hmm. in terms of my faith and the truth is if you see each of those as sort of a peak uh but underneath it is the whole glacier they're just kind of the top of the iceberg Mm -hmm. christ is always dealing with the bigger questions which are underneath all of that what does it mean to be human Mm-hmm. Uh, why are we here? What's the nature of love, relationship? Why does sex matter? Um, but we never get to those questions because right. there isn't a dialogue going on in culture well, between often, these groups. Well, often we position ourselves as just another group, right? So we see the identity politics playing out. And instead of saying, which one can I align with? We just become our own. Right. And, and that's, I think, one of the things that Trump promised or appealed to that made him so attractive to some segments of evangelicals was, hey, he's going to return us from our, our cultural exile, right? It's going to be safe to say Merry Christmas again, where we can preach politics from the pulpit, not worry about tax exemption. We're going to have Christian right. judges, you know, all over the place or whatever. So, so it's fascinating that the burn it down option can play out in so many so many tricky ways. Right? Yeah. And and again, it's it can have a completely Christian version or a completely, you right. know, non-Christian version, but it's still working off the same premises. Right. That my my truth however created by whatever authority needs to be recognized and enforced so that all people everywhere endorse it. Right. Um, right. And so there's a hostility to the burn it down mentality. Yes. Uh, because every little group has got a torch, so to speak. Yeah. 
And so if the church just becomes another one of those groups, um, it's very difficult as a missionary to communicate a transcendent God that has broken into reality uh, through the person of Christ, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because that doesn't look anything like uh, <laughs> Jesus, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Those, yeah. But it's super confusing because I think Christians are going, what? If the question is, what does it mean to be the people of God now? Then the answer must be, I need to jump on one of these bandwagons. Right. Right. But I don't think that's what we see the people of God doing in exile. No. And what a great segue into what do we see them doing? What, my friend, well, is the third B? The third B uh, is bless <laughs> and resist. Uh, so what you see him doing, uh, whether it's a Daniel or his three buddies uh, or Jeremiah in his letter is... Or the veggie tales. The veggie t- <laughs> yes. tales. Yep. Um, it's this call to say you are to be the faithful presence of Christ as well as a prophetic witness of Christ. So, in other words, we bless the culture that we live in, and we also resist its idolatry in all the forms it takes. Um, And we see that in Christ, right? Like when he's navigating the same kind of polarized, pluralistic culture, uh, there's times where he's very strong in his rebuke to the religious community, but as well as his rebuke to uh, Roman government. Uh, and yet there's also moments where he's, he's speaking to sinners and going, Hey, you need to quit sinning, (laughs) you know, like after an incredible display of mercy and grace, he's like, yeah, you need to leave your life of sin. And so there's this faithful presence. Like this is what mercy and grace and, and, uh, and redemption looks like. There's also this prophetic witness, mm-hmm. right, that says there's another world and another kingdom uh, and another reality that we're called not just to acknowledge, but to actually live under, which totally sounds crazy yeah. in a culture like ours. <laughs> it does. And and so so my question is, how do you know blessing is actually blessing and not baptizing? How do you know when when to bless and when to resist? Because all of those groups are gonna are gonna use that language and mm-hmm. and say, well, you know, uh, we have immigrants. Look at how the Bible talks about immigrants. So I'm blessing any movement towards, you know, mm-hmm. making it harder. Other people say, no, I want to resist. Right. So the, so so yes. Totally agree with you, and that's certainly what you see with Daniel, where he's he's resisting the new diet, but he doesn't resist the name after a Babylonian god. Um, so the question is how how do you begin to discern uh, mm-hmm. what to bless and what to resist? Yeah, and and that's really the answer is discernment. What? Um, Yes, you answered it in your question. It's how do we discern our moment and what faithfulness looks like and what um, what idol- idols exist in my culture, what I'm supposed to, 
you know, bump up against and say no to. What you see happening with Daniel, uh, whether he's the lion's den or, you know, uh, the whole food sacrifice. I mean, he didn't, we don't know why he doesn't eat the food, right? but he does take the name of a pagan God. And so you hear like preachers and stuff, try to f- make sense of that. And all in my mind that he's doing is he's trying to discern what faithfulness looks like hmm. for him. There was something about the meat that said, you know what, that would be against my conscience against the Torah, and so I'm going to resist that. But when it's like, hey, we're going to call you Belteshazzar in this pagan name, he's like, yeah, that's fine. Call me whatever you want. And so discernment isn't a skill that we are very good at in our (laughs) culture. (laughs) No. And why is that, you think? Um, well, there's a couple things. One is we've taught behaviors, uh, instead of the skill and kind of art of how do I listen to the word of God and the spirit of God and obey it. Oh, no, hold on. Let's, let's camp there. Don't forget number two, but I think this is a huge point that you make in the book that I think is incredible. So discernment, um, N.T. Wright, obviously, as you know, uses this this idea of a play, right? Where mm-hmm. we have like the first several acts of a play and then we have the ending, but we have to improvise faithfully what was, what's come before and what's, you know, coming to us. And, um, and so I couldn't agree more with the idea that discernment is uh, what's required. Um, how, does, how does behavior, teaching behavior replace that? How does teaching well, behavior replace discernment? Well, you know, what happens, maybe not at the very beginning uh, of, like, the Christian life. When I became a Christian, and they were like, hey, you know, you shouldn't probably keep getting drunk on the weekends. and The Coors you know, Light. The, yeah, yeah, the Coors Light. Um, there, was a, there was a moment where that was helpful. Yeah. Like, I didn't have the framework to understand, like, how to navigate this. But eventually... Um, what the church has done is say, we just need to teach the right behaviors because then what will be the distinctive in culture is we are the people who don't do certain things. Um, and you know, in the fifties that might've been, we don't go see movies. We don't dance. We don't, I mean, you hear about all these kind of behaviors that are really interesting you know, with the, yeah. with the Bible that tell, talks about dancing all the time and uh, drinking new wine and all that. So, so what we do is we abdicate to some kind of behavioral yeah. set of rules. Right. And, and so people check out. They're like, all right, just tell me how to be a good Christian and what to do, as opposed to being a storied people who, like, if, if we'd spent all the time teaching the story instead of how to behave, um, we might know who we are and who our God is and what he's done and how he's coming back and what, what, how we improvise right yeah. now. Yeah. And so the people of exile knew their story. Um, yeah. 
that from the calendar to the feast, I mean, they acted out the story mm-hmm. throughout their days, their weeks, their months, their years. Even with and their with structures the, removed, yeah. the story was big enough to carry. It was big their enough identity. to carry. Absolutely. And that's when they went back to the scriptures yeah. and we're like, that's okay, right. how do we, we need someone to teach us this. So if we can't meet in the temple, cause we, there isn't one, we're going to meet in groups of, you know, 20 to 30 around the Bible and have somebody teach it to us so we can remember who we are and who our God is and what he requires of us. Um, and, and so, Part of the evangelical demise, in my opinion, has been um, we teach people a doctrinal statement that you need to believe this to get into heaven, and we almost never come back to it, (laughs) right? (laughs) And so it lives somewhere on a website that says this is what you have to believe to be a Christian, and then and then we not we meaning this is a sweeping statement, but we demonize the outside world Mm -hmm. and we assume the church and the gospel are the same thing. And yes. And then we create this sense of kind of superiority without even trying uh, this whole pharisaical mindset sweeps in. The issue though, is we don't know our story Mm. and we see this like, um, my good friends that started the Bible project. Yep. Um, they office out of our space here in Portland, but I mean, that thing has gone crazy. Yeah. But part of that is Christians don't know the story. Right. So when I can watch a 10 minute video that explains how the book of Ruth is put together and I can read it and understand it for myself, like, Oh my gosh, this is, this is like incredible. And it just goes to show you, uh, we did a, a Bible read through thing in our church uh, a couple of years ago. And in our home communities, we would just kind of discuss like what we read that week. And these people were all people who were raised in the church who had never in 30 years or whatever experienced the, sh- the Bible like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. they, they were like, you know, we spent six months in the book of James. Um, but we never like read the book, like it was a letter. Yeah. And so what happens is you don't realize the story, you know, and how the story is written. I remember one lady in the group said we were reading, uh, about Solomon's life. And she said, you know, the thing that bugs me is that as he's taking all these wives and, you know, making all these, uh, marriages with, (laughs) with Egypt and, you know, building this thing, God doesn't seem to say anything about it. And so I go, okay, well, let's go back to Deuteronomy 23 and let's look at what God says the king should do. Mm. And, and so when the author is writing that he is signaling, like, look out, this is wrong. This is bad. This is not what's supposed to be happening. But because we don't know the story, mm-hmm. right? Yep. We aren't picking up on how the author is writing it. Right. And so, I mean, you could go on and on for how the Bible has sort of been pieced. We've turned it into propositions and all that. But 
But if we can get back to the story, yes. then we can maybe discern the, the future. Okay, so discernment starts there, right? Knowing the story, knowing how it began, what's brought us to this point, knowing how it ends. Totally, totally agree. You also make the argument, though, that discernment is sustained by certain practices. Um, You see that with Israel, right? And we've referenced a couple already. Um, What are the, I mean, I know what five you highlight, but let's let's hear you tell everybody (laughs) what five you highlight and why, why that matters. Because you could argue that you're just giving us a new to-do list, right? To replace the old 1950s to-do list instead of, being known for what we're against, now we're going to be known for what we're for, but it's the same assumptions mm-hmm. as we've talked about underlying both. So why does this matter um, differently than the way the the way that previous generations have said we need to be holy and distinct, you know, in our culture? How is this a different approach? Uh, yeah, and I would say... Well, I'll answer that in a long, long form. Essentially, <laughs> practices, like the practices of Israel, they did a couple things. They weren't simply like how to behave well, yeah. but they were meant to keep them in the story. Yeah, right. Good. To remember who I am good. and who my God is and what the point of life is. That was such so a good question I asked you. That was it was, such it a, good was a powerful, yeah, just super powerful. powerful. So, so it's really difficult to go. I don't watch, you know, we don't dance, right? Because our God, you know, has two left feet or right, doesn't right. have rhythm or what. So when we talk about practices, we're talking about that somehow these pull me into the faithful presence of Christ and the prophetic witness of Christ, and. And they also change me, right? So when I practice the way of Jesus, it should call me back to Jesus, for one, for my own (laughs) transformation. And for two, it should show up in the culture as his faithful presence Mm. or his prophetic witness or both, right? Mm -hmm. And so we looked at, and, and by the way, this is, this is also coming from experiences with, with friends from other religions. Mm. Uh, there was a, a gathering in Morocco uh, a little over a year ago, and it was 30 of us pastors, 30 imams, and 30 rabbis. Mm. And, and so the imams are there, and they're dressed in you know imam garb, and the rabbis are there, and they have their yarmulkes on, and, and they all have this common life right common calendar that their churches are doing uh the imams got up in the middle of the meeting because they needed to go pray Mm -hmm. at four o'clock and when it came to the pastors it's like we had none like zero (laughs) we didn't even we're like i guess we could pray before we eat you know sometimes (laughs) and and it was really striking you know we could sort of dress however we wanted and um, and, and that it, it spoke to something sacred about what they believe that they were, that they were willing to reorder their life around their faith. Uh, okay. I think part of the freedom of Christianity is that it isn't a workspace thing. And so we don't have to do 
that. We don't have to, but there are some get tos. Hmm. And, and so what would those distinctive practices be for Christians that are both faithful and prophetic in a, in a culture, in a consumer pluralistic culture like ours? Mm-hmm. And so the ones that we looked at were hospitality, right? Um, Very the up. idea yep. of creating space, not just for your friends, but for the other, whoever that is. Jesus was big into that. Um, <laughs> as it turns out. As it turns out. <laughs> generosity is another one to yeah. live this whole life of generosity. And in a consumer culture like America, generosity is wildly prophetic. Mm-hmm. Um, so after the Orlando shooting, I'll tell you a story about how I see it as prophetic. Uh, after the Orlando shooting, there's a place in Portland called the Q Center, and there's some great people uh, who are working with uh, that population in Portland. And we took a gift over to them just to say, look, I, I know that this is a scary time for your community. I'm sure you guys are taxed with counseling and all the things that you do. And so we just wanted to say that we believe Christ loves you. And here's a gift of $2,000 or something like that. And, you know, they're in tears. Uh, it, we have this kind of cool moment, even though we're not an affirming, quote unquote, church. So a year and a half goes by. And then this summer, it's really hot in Portland, which is a surprise. And the Q Center's um, AC goes out. And it's fifteen grand to fix this. And the director calls, sends me an email. I'm gone on vacation. My assistant gives it to a guy on staff. They sit down. And he essentially, the director says, I didn't know who else to call. Wow. So in four hours, um, Ken Waggle, who's on our staff, he calls six or seven churches because we're pretty connected in Portland. Yeah. And we raise the 15 grand, right? And as he sits down to give him this check, he says, I want you to know this is coming from churches that you think hate you, wow. but they don't hate you. And um, yeah, so it was just this very powerful moment when the Q Center guy goes to kind of write his three-month newsletter, he's like, you know, the our, our AC went out and the faith community of Portland actually stepped up and helped us, which is, you know, so sometimes help comes from the most surprising places yeah. <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. But, what, but what's prophetic about that level of generosity is because in a, a place like Portland, proudly progressive, mm-hmm. this guy still can't call anybody else mm. when he has a financial need at that level. And that blows my mind. Yeah. Right. Like yep. there should be uh, progressives out there with money and means companies, whatever that are, that are ready to, to fix that and help that community. But it obviously doesn't exist. Cause he said, you, you were the only one I could call. I didn't know who else to call. That's amazing. So generosity has this prophetic edge mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. And also the faithful presence of Jesus going, look, we see you, we love you. You know, you're known to us. Um, 
So generosity, I think, personally, collectively, for the church to be a generous place is pretty insane. Uh, and then vocation, I think, r- taking back work as a sacred thing, as well as our calling to singleness and marriage. Mm. I think those callings around vocation, um, they basically story us, you know, Uh, like we work, but we work for a different reason. We marry for different reasons. Our singleness is seen differently. How do we live faithfully to that? Mm -hmm. And, and that one looks really weird in a culture like ours. (laughs) And and so we have to, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of work to do around that one. Yeah. And, and then, um, celebration and Sabbath, just the idea that we'd have these weekly rhythms and we'd stop and we'd cease. Hate those. And yeah, it's very difficult, but it's also freedom. And the and the and the most important one that I think all these wrap around is that we hear and obey the word and spirit. Come on, you fundy. I know. Uh but honestly, like we've created a culture of biblical ignorance when we have had the most resources right isn't that funny grow on this thing and and uh we we adopted the educational sort of system where you come here you learn a bunch of information at some point you'll achieve mastery and then you can go actually be this christian but jesus flipped the whole thing upside down he said come follow me hear my word and obey it and you could do that from day one. And so what would it look like if God's people had that kind of posture that when he says, love your neighbor, we don't go, who's my neighbor? <laughs> right. I need more information on this. Can yeah. Let's, let's study ocean? it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and it comes from a fundamental belief that we don't lack information. We lack formation. Come on. We don't, it's not a how to question. It's a want to question and yeah. we don't want to do what God calls us to do. And that's, that gets fixed, not by information, but by repentance. You know, I like, I like how you had this nifty little, we think information equals formation, but it's actually participation that equals formation. Yeah. And the way we participate in the kingdom is not only by bearing its good news, but by walking in the way that Jesus walked, which. Totally. And even when he calls them to, you know, he sends out the 12 and the 72. I mean, it's pretty, pretty significant risk, right? Don't, (laughs) don't take any money. Don't. Oh yeah. No uh, bags, no luggage, right? no bags, no nothing. If people don't, bring you in, kick the dust off your feet. And by the way, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, <laughs> you know, like, all right, see ya. <laughs> We're out. It's, it's pretty intense, this walk of faith. And we can, we have so much to take the risk out of faith. Yeah. Uh, but I think practices, they really are triformational. If we, if we start to order our life around, by the way, these are all things we're doing. We're going to eat. We're going to sit at a table probably and eat. We're going to spend our money. We're going to go to work. We're going to be in relationship. We're going to try to rest on our day off. It's just taking our life and 
turning all those things towards the grace of Christ yeah. and living with intentionality into them. What, one of the things that I wish we had time for, we don't, because um, I've already kept you too long, but the, the things that are happening in Portland, that's, that's the re- for me, knowing some of what Imago's done, some of what you've done, relationship with the mayor, how tight-knit the church community is up there. You've had to, and you've had to fight for that. Um, the, some of the stuff you've pulled off with, with Luis Palau in the middle of the city or whatever else. I mean, it's just been, it's, it's been really remarkable. And um, some of what I would do is encourage our folks just to do a bit of research on the church. Um, uh, where, what's, what's, which of the books really gets into some of that stuff? I don't remember which one. In terms of the distinctiveness of how you guys are, no coughing. This is live. I'm gonna cough. No, Uh, no coughing. Which of your books gets into that? Was that Beautiful Mess? Um, Beautiful Mess does a little bit of that, but that was written uh 2006, I think. What that was prior to any of the Palau pieces, you know. Yeah, I don't know. There's stories online. Christianity Today has done some stories, I think, if you research it, but. It, it's yeah, just, we, it's, it's been, been pretty crazy how God's allowed one for the church just to be unified and work together. It's sad that if that's not happening in every city, it's kind of a bummer. Um, but then the other thing I think is the the idea that we don't have to own every good work. That there's a lot of people who don't love Jesus or know Jesus who are doing some pretty amazing work. Mm -hmm. And when we join and partner with them, it really does create that, that evangelistic sort of mercy uh, interplay between the faith community and social sectors that has all kinds of transformation involved in it from spiritual transformation through relationships and kind of, friendship evangelism to the good work that's being done. Um, I mean, right now we're working with the foster care system uh, through Embrace Oregon. And then that started just with four families at Imago. And now it's the governor has asked that that go to every county in Oregon. And so it's become its own nonprofit and it's just connecting the faith community to DHS. Department of uh, Human Services and, you know, like powerful, powerful stuff. <laughs> it's been crazy. Super fun. <laughs> oh, Rick, man, thank you so much for your time. Um, people can find you on Twitter, of course. And Twitter. F- and yeah. Facebook. And Facebook. And, and, and Instagram. Yes, Rick McKinley. And that is just um, one R on the Rick. Just want to clarify that. Um, and you can look up. Uh, yeah. One R. Three eyes. Yeah. What's your, what's your middle name? My middle name? Yeah, let's El hear pa- it. El Padre. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Are you are you being real? Because I took that as a joke. No, that's what's tattooed on my stomach. Oh, um, I'm just- <laughs> 
I'm just kidding. Oh, oh boy. boy. Oh, oh boy. boy. My middle name is John, as in okay. the bathroom. Yeah, understood. Or the Baptist, either, yeah, either one. Yeah, my family wasn't uh, super into the Baptist. Okay, so the John it is. Um, so Richard John McKinley is, is what we're talking about, RJ. That is, if, yeah, if you go get my medical record, that's what you'll be looking up. All right, I like it. Um, so, so thank you. You can pick up faith for this moment. Um, presently, <laughs> you can pick that up at, uh, at Amazon or anywhere. That's right. You can pick it up as a present. You could pick it up in, in the, the present. present. Dude. You can pick it up. Yeah. For, uh, yeah. With, yeah. With the present. Sure. Know. Um, so anyway, man, thank you so very much. Yes. Thanks for having me, man. And, uh, Vox community. Thank you for an incredible 2018. So grateful, uh, for you and so grateful to, to be a small part of your journey. So until next time, my friends, thanks. 